0: How are you doing, Podcats? Adam Buxton here. I'm with my best dog friend, Rosie. She is a half whippet, half poodle, and she is currently sniffing away at a clump of long grass, wet with rain, at the side of a farm track out here in Norfolk, UK, where we are taking advantage of a break in the clouds. The oppressive dark clouds that have hung around this place for the last few days in a well depressing fashion. But right now, the sun's come out and it's actually quite great and beautiful, and everything looks wonderful. So that's cheered me up. What about you, Rosie? I'm mysteriously sniffing. What is it? You always sniff around there. It's a special smell place. What kind of smells? animals. Sometimes animals, sometimes regret, and sometimes opportunity. <laughs> Dog guys, What are you doing there? Come on, let's go. How are you doing, podcats? Hope you're well. I'm doing okay. Thanks very much. Uh, Let me tell you a little bit about my guest for today's podcast. It's podcast number 197, and it features a rambling conversation with British actor and musician Paddy Considine. Paddy facts. Patrick George Considine was born in 1973 and lived with his parents and siblings in Winsill, near Burton-on-Trent, in the West Midlands of England. Paddy studied performing arts at Burton College in the early 90s. That was where he met the Scorsese to his De Niro, Shane Meadows, who cast Paddy as the lead in his 1999 film, A Room for Romeo Brass. Paddy also starred in and co-wrote Shane's 2004 film, Dead Man's Shoes, in which he played an ex-soldier returning to his hometown in search of revenge. What a film. Some of my other favourite films that feature Paddy include 2002's 24-Hour Party People, in which Paddy played the manager of New Order and Joy Division, Rob Gretton. Paddy was, of course, in Hot Fuzz, released in 2002. He was one of the dim-witted local detectives in a little double act with Rafe Spall we talk a bit about Hot Fuzz in our conversation. That same year, 2007, The Bourne Ultimatum was released, in which Paddy played an ill-fated journalist from The Guardian. And, of course, there's Tyrannosaur, Paddy's first film as writer and director, released in 2011. His second film as writer and director, which he also starred in, was Journeyman, released in 2017 about a boxer who suffers a serious head injury. I haven't seen that one, I must confess. I've seen Tyrannosaur, though. Not something I'm likely to forget. It was based on a short film that Paddy made in 2007. That was called Dog Altogether. And it was about a man called Joseph, trapped in a violent spiral of self-destructive rage. That's what it used to say in my old Twitter bio. And Hannah herself suffering at the hands of a horrifically abusive husband who provides a focus for Joseph's redemption. Both films starred Peter Mullen and Olivia Colman. And if you haven't seen Tyrannosaur, I'd really recommend it. But you definitely have to pick the right moment. It's very intense and upsetting in parts. So maybe a good one for Christmas afternoon with the whole family. Just tell them it's about dinosaurs. Paddy has also popped up in TV dramas a fair bit over the years in shows like Red Riding and Peaky Blinders. And earlier this year, he had a starring role in the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon. Paddy played the embattled King Viserys Targaryen in episodes that also featured actors Olivia Cooke, Emma Darcy, rhys Ifans and Matt Smith. My conversation with Paddy took place remotely towards the middle of October this year 2022 with me getting over a cold in my nutty room here in Norfolk and Paddy talking to me from the house he shares with his wife and three children not far from where he grew up in the West Midlands. We talked about life in the Game of Thrones universe, self-doubt, love a bit of self-doubt chat, self-doubt chat, self-doubt chat, Self-doubt, chat, I'm so into that. Early in the morning, self-doubt's already dawning. Growing more intense throughout the day. Those are the original lyrics, I think. We also talked about some of the childhood experiences at school and at home that have fed into Paddy's more intense screen portrayals. And we talked about another central passion in his life, music. Paddy is the lead singer and songwriter for the band Riding the Low, alongside bandmates Chris Baldwin, Dan Baker, Rich Eaton and Connor Smith. They tour frequently and earlier this year they released their third album, which features polished indie rock occasionally reminiscent of Oasis and one of Paddy's all-time favourite bands, Guided by Voices, whose frontman Robert Pollard we spoke about towards the end of our conversation. But we started by reminiscing about the summer of 2006, when I met Paddy for the first time during the two weeks I spent filming my part in Hot Fuzz on location in the village of Wells, Somerset, where the film's director, Edgar Wright, grew up. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now with Paddy Considine. Here we go. (laughs) When would the last time that I saw you have been? I think it might have been a Riding the Low show soon after yeah. we filmed Hot Fuzz.
2: Yeah, it probably would have been. Yeah, that's where I first met you was on Hot Fuzz. And you came along to a gig, didn't you? One of yeah. our sort of early London gigs. Yeah. So when it was all pretty ramshackle and mad. But, um, I've
0: got a photograph of me at that show, which I think was, where would it have been?
2: Oh, to Islington or something?
0: There you go. Exactly right o2 islington and i've got a photograph of my brother who came along that night uncle dave and behind him photo bombing the shot is olivia coleman
2: yeah olivia came that night as well yeah before she sort of skyrocketed she could walk around in them days without having to wear glasses and a woolly hat. so yeah (laughs) she, she came along to that show as well i really enjoyed it. it was such a good
0: night where did you meet olivia was it on hot fuzz
2: Yeah, I met Olivia on that at the read-through, actually. It was the first time I met her. I'd written this short film and I was looking to try and cast it with the right person and um, I I couldn't really find the right actress for it. And it was one of those really weird moments where we both walked through the door at the same time and I went to hold it for her and she sort of went to hold it for me and she went, no, after you, in her Olivia way. And I went, I don't know, a light bulb went off and I went, I've found her. You know, I could get all sort of philosophical about it, but there was a voice greater than mine that says, she's the one, it's her. But yeah, she she came along and did the short film and that short film transformed into Tyrannosaur eventually. And But yeah, it was all from Hot Fuzz, from Holding a Door. <laughs> but it was a beautiful thing. Hot Fuzz was a great one because there's just so many great people that I met on it and that I'm still in touch with today.
0: I texted Edgar Wright yesterday and said that I was going to be speaking to you. Edgar is the fastest text responder I've ever known. It's extraordinary. (laughs) I think maybe he's had his phone implanted into his mind now. And so he just thinks his responses and they come back immediately. For someone who's incredibly busy as Edgar is. Yeah, he
2: does get back to you. It's (laughs)
0: awe-inspiring.
2: Yeah, I'm usually a day. I'm sometimes a day or two, you know. A day? That is
0: fine. I've done months before. Really? Yeah, in a kind of totally crazy (laughs) way. So it goes beyond a certain point. Like, a week is not good. For a week, you'll say, hey, sorry it's taken so long, blah, blah, blah. But then then you get to a month, and you think, it's not even worth making an excuse or apologising, I'm just going to respond, and they'll have to think, oh, what a weird guy. Anyway... I texted Edgar and he said, he said to send you his love, first of all. Yeah. Has he told you to ask me something? Not really. I was saying to him, like, have you got anything specific, any specific memories of Hot Fuzz? I was saying. And he said, you can ask him about loss of nerve. He nearly dropped out of Hot Fuzz, I think because he felt outgunned. And I asked him to stay and he was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear and then he said but he did the same on world's end too so i <laughs> nickn- i nicknamed him mr 11th hour
2: yeah he calls me the 11th hour man <laughs> yeah that's interesting because it, i didn't feel so much that i was outgunned on hot fuzz that wasn't it really we had dead man shoes doing the circuit at the same time that Sean of the dead was doing the circuit so we i got to know ed and simon you know quite a bit just for us being in the same room together at the time and that developed into you know a friendship with Simon and with Ed and then Hot Fuzz came around and I got the script for Hot Fuzz and I thought it was great and I think Shaun of the Dead is just an incredible film I I think it's a brilliant piece of work on every level and so it was great this opportunity to work with them and to work with Edgar. But in the meantime, I got offered two other films and one of them was a really substantial part. And I thought, you know, we can make both work of these, but I can't make hot fuzz work. Yeah. This wasn't me being unprofessional even. I just thought, oh, Edgar, like those guys know loads of comedians and people. They've got all mates and they've, you know, they can easily get someone to jump in and do that part. It's no problem. And so that's what I kind of said. I said, listen, I've been offered these two other things and, you know, it's, it's a good thing for me. Best of luck with it. I'm sure you'll find the right person. And Edgar did <laughs> what Edgar does, which was he dug his heels in and, and it was like, absolutely no way are you going anywhere. <laughs> and I remember getting a call from Simon saying, oh, mate, you know, it, you know it's all gone to shit and, you know, a working title are talking about suing you. For, for walking off the project. And I just burst out laughing. What? Why? You know, really? But what it actually did was made me realise a lot about Edgar and how passionate he is about something, an idea. And when he's got that in his head, it, he won't let it go. And I went, oh, fair enough. You know, it, I wasn't heartbroken about letting these other things go. And in the end, Hot Fuzz is the thing that's endured the most anyway out of any of these potential projects that were around but I've got nothing but admiration for Edgar I love him to bits, he comes out for everything, he turns up for everything if you've got a film screening he's there if you're in a play he's there he comes along and he's one of those people that I love being in the company of, he's a fantastic raconteur a brilliant artist I just, I love him so much so to me um, it, it was just power to him I just admired him more really Yeah, <laughs> for digging in <laughs>
0: Yeah, he really assembled a special group of people. And it was such fun for me because I'm not really part of that world necessarily. I don't do that many things with other people. So it was just a fantastic holiday for me to suddenly be spending a couple of weeks in Wells, in Somerset. Yeah. And we were doing the big scenes with the Fate and where I get killed by the um, turret. It's a great scene. (laughs) And it was really fun. The weather was good. So we just sort of sitting around. I, I remember feeling bad for Edgar because obviously he had to work. He couldn't relax and sit down and just fart about with everyone else.
2: I mean, you just described it then as a holiday and that's what it felt like. That summer in Wales was amazing. It was like the last great summer or something. It was beautiful. And we were meeting people like yourself, just people were coming and going all the time. I have a funny memory of
0: hanging out in Simon Pegg's trailer and you were flicking through his DVD wallet and really? um, you were you lighted on Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Simon had about 100 Buffy the Vampire Slayer DVDs and you were like, what is this? Why are you watching <laughs> Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Simon had to defend his love of Buffy.
2: Oh, yeah, Simon had the big trailer, didn't he? And with the telly and all the comfy seats and that and what have you. Yeah. And we were slumming it, but it was fun. You know, that was it was just a great time. Everyone was on such good form. It really was a great job to do.
0: Yeah, it was wonderful. But I remember at the end of my time on Hot Fuzz talking to you and asking you what you were up to. And you were about to go off and do the Bourne Ultimatum, weren't you?
2: Possibly. Yeah, yeah. I'm terrible with timelines, but probably, yeah. I think I'd just walk in through Soho and I'd bumped into Paul Greengrass and he just said to me, what are you doing later this summer, later this year? And I went, oh, nothing. And he went, oh, I'll give you a call. And then that was it. I think I felt again with Bourne, being a part of that experience and working with somebody like Paul Greengrass was amazing. Watching him put the pieces together, working with Matt was amazing on a film like that because it was such a juggernaut but I still felt again I just thought this isn't my calling card I struggled with that thing of what am I bringing to this character wise and I just I could think of 10 other actors that could play that role I think I was always looking for the kind of roles that would make you sort of stand out a little bit I suppose
0: which are the parts you've done that you think of in those
2: terms I think, Adam, it's something when you bring a piece of yourself to it in some way. Yeah. For me, because I'm not a trained as an actor. All I can bring is the experiences, your imagination and certain experiences. So probably A Room for Romeo Brass, the first thing I ever did as an actor. Dead Man's Shoes, possibly. Um, a film I did with Jim Sheridan years ago called In America. Uh-huh. There's a few, I think, that I brought something to. Even when I played a priest in... Peaky Blinders I brought some weight to him and more recently the the King Viserys that I play in the House of the Dragon I think that's probably the, the greatest character I've ever played in my eyes the story was right the character was right and I'd, I'd not long really come off doing a play that we'd done in the West End and, in, and on Broadway and I think because like I said I wasn't trained as an actor in any way I felt that I had some talent but I thought there were certain areas lacking and the theatre was a massive education for me.
0: Is that doing the ferryman?
2: Yeah yeah and I think that at least by the time that we were well into the run on Broadway I think that I don't know something had changed within me I felt like I'd learned a lot about acting a lot of the things that I feared about it or was unsure of about it so by the time I came to play Viserys in House of the Dragon I just felt like I'd learned a lot of things that I could now put into practice that had given me a lot more tools to work with.
0: Yeah, it's a great part for you because it does incorporate, as you say, all the things that you're good at, but there's also something that I haven't seen you do before, which is a more mellow and, I suppose, middle-aged, a kind of middle-aged desire to make people be decent to each other or treat each other properly or just, just that yearning you have as a father for for people to get on. You're a father as well, right?
2: Yeah, I am. I've got three kids. Yeah.
0: How old are they now?
2: My boy's 19 and the girls are 16 and 13. So they're all growing up.
0: Yeah. Uh, I have a similar spread of children, actually, similar ages. And when they're not getting on, it is such a bad feeling. You just feel, A, that you've failed as a father somehow, because you have all these fantasies <laughs> when you're when you become a parent you kind of well I did anyway I vaguely imagined us all sitting around like a kind of Richard Curtis family dancing to ska music and just doing jokes and getting on great and then you have those days as a parent where everyone is just at each other's throats no one's getting on one of them's weird and having a breakdown you don't know what's going to happen to them (laughs) you just think oh no we've totally fucked this up it's an awful feeling and sometimes you go into Viserys mode and you you just want to slam on the table and say come on guys this is this is it this is the long term we got to think of the future this is family this is really important we've got to get on and I felt that so much from your um portrayal
2: yeah, I think he just sees the nonsense in all the bickering, and, and from his point of view, like all these people are fighting over this kind of seat and position of power. Yeah. But it's a really corruptible seat. That, that throne is a haunted chair, you know. It's a responsibility being a ruler and a king and a peaceful one. It takes its toll on you, and it takes its toll on him. And I think part of my thinking behind him was you you all fight over this thing and you're all craving this power and you're all all this skullduggery is happening but this this thing destroys people it destroys lives it destroys you know families and kingdoms and so I think that was where he was coming from but as far as your own kids I mean we find that it's like having three there's never all three of them and never in a good place at the same time yeah. you know it's like spinning plates and one crashes and you're like, why can't they all just be in a great place all at the same time? And it's never like that. There's always one coming through something and then another one is about to enter something, you know. Exactly So it's right. difficult. I, the, the
0: expression that I always come back to, which I can't remember who said it to me, but they said, oh, you're
2: only ever as happy as your unhappiest child. Yeah, that's a true one. It's so true. You're always worrying about one of them.
0: Yeah. And it's such yeah. a, it, it's a terrible feeling. Last night, we sat around and watched episode eight of House of the Dragon. And that is the episode in which your character, King Viserys, dies. Mm-hmm. And that was hardcore. Oh, because my wife, her dad died earlier this year. My dad died a few years ago. And um dead dad stuff, man. I mean, even even years ago when my dad was hale and hearty it always got to me like a a film like remains of the day really shredded me because i Mm. knew that that was coming one day that painful feeling of of losing my dad would happen and i just was terrified of it it's deep stuff dead dad stuff and dead parents stuff in general i'm not suggesting it's just fathers and sons was all that stuff going through your head at all or are you just focused on the technical business at hand when you're doing No,
2: no. I, I can honestly say that, you know, I put everything into that character and that was that was a lot of days shooting of him lying in that bed. And, you know, it's a strange thing, you know, people talk about method acting. I don't, I don't consider myself to be that, you know, when I've worked with actors that... Think they're method actors, they just seem to be pretty selfish people, or they've misunderstood (laughs) the method, you know. And I'm like, well, that's not what what it's about. I like actors. I know sometimes you have to get yourself into character, but I'm an admirer of actors that can flip the switch a little bit too. Mm -hmm. And there are those heavy days on set where you do have to, you know, find a corner and prepare yourself mentally for things. That's your job. It's a strange thing that that psychological thing you have. I remember like. Early on, there's a drunk scene when I'm in the garden with Matt, and the only way I could perform it was to make myself giddy. Mm-hmm. So I just became giddy, but I became giddy for the morning. And some people might consider that method acting like I was acting drunk, but I wasn't. I was just giddy and laughing at everything. And... Oh, right. You weren't spinning yourself around. And no, I just became in this really silly, giddy mindset. and. Uh-huh which worked you know I had to sort of do that to release my mind a little bit but with the with the bed stuff with the dying stuff there was a point where we were doing it for so long and I was breathing that way for so long that my oxygen levels went right down Mm -hmm. and you know you're about to pass out so I had to be taken outside and I'm not some sort of drama queen or anything but you kind of go, shit, you know, we, we take this for granted, this acting thing, but you, you do this stuff with your mind and it starts to have a weird effect on your body. It's almost like my mind was telling my body that I was sick and therefore my levels were lowering, you know, and I was becoming sick doing it. It's kind of strange, but I I didn't watch episode eight, but my wife had watched it and my daughter and they were pretty upset with it. And my wife said, just watch the end. You know, years ago, I'd watched my dad die of cancer mm-hmm. and he and it just went downhill rapidly from being diagnosed to being on death's door. You know, he became skeletal so rapidly. And so when she showed me that end thing and my face came up, I just burst into tears because I looked the image of my dad when he was dying, the image of him. And it was shocking. It was really, really shocking to me. I put so much of my mum's characteristics into this character Viserys. But like when I saw that, I thought that's my dad. And it was terrifying. Um, so it was it was pretty impactful stuff. <laughs> yeah.
0: It looked like my dad too. I think it probably looks like a lot of people at the end of their lives. Yeah. It was really hardcore, actually. And to have it to have it be in this fantasy show and also to have those sort of horror elements of the makeup as well. Yeah. Put a strange nightmarish twist on the whole thing, because usually you see depictions of people at the end of their lives in sort of straightforward dramas. It's generally not considered a massive crowd pleasing type of scene to include in a blockbuster there's not too many of them in the marvel movies for example (laughs) but um to have this really hardcore emotional material in the game of thrones universe really wrong-footed me i was quite discombobulated by the end of it just to go super trivial for a second, after talking about all this heavy stuff, <laughs> um, how do they make you all skeletal and skinny? Is that all CG or, or?
2: Yeah, I had a finish point for Viserys with the kind of hunched back and you know the deterioration, the frailty of his body, and those heavy clothes on him and things like that. That that was something that we mapped out early. But how far visually he kind of de- degenerated, it was still up in the air a little bit and. Not even I knew that it was going to go that far until about halfway through filming. So the idea of me losing weight to play that part and get that emaciated, it just wasn't possible. Mm. We were shooting so out of story order that, you know, we could be shooting episode two one day and episode four the next, sometimes two separate episodes in one day. So uh, there's no way that I could map this journey to his disintegration or anything like that or start from that and build upwards. So we had to get around it with, with CGI. And then I, I had a body double who was this really thin guy. He was one of the extras I think they pulled out. And I'd act the scene out and then they'd bring him in to just mirror what my movements were. So they had a reference, like somebody with a very thin body doing it. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it's a mixture of all that. And my only thing was, like, this is this is a performance, right? This is a character. We're not going to lose that. And and thankfully, we didn't. It was pretty subtle, actually. It was shocking, but it was subtle.
0: W- were you a big Game of Thrones uh, from day one?
2: No, no. I got sent the original script for an episode or two of the first ever Game of Thrones. Yeah. Years ago. And... At the time, it was just like, have a read of it and see what you think, who you like in it. And I'm I'm not a fantastic reader, Uh particularly if it's it's complicated and there's lots of characters. And I couldn't really understand it. I, I couldn't get my head around the names and who people were. Join the club. But... I, I spoke to my agent at the time and, and I said, what's this thing actually about? And he explained it in a way like, he goes, oh, you know, it's about kingdoms and this this chair and, you know, there's dragons and there's lots of like, you know, sex. And and I just went, oh, I don't know if I can be asked to, <laughs> you know, get, in, get into that life.
0: I felt the same way as a viewer.
2: <laughs> and so I had the box set set on my uh, in my collection for ages of the first season, and I yeah. was Sean Bean staring down at me, and I'm like, I'll put that on one day, and I just <laughs> never got round to it. And then this this weird synchronicity happened where the lockdowns happened, uh-huh. and we were going through that first wave of it, and running out of things to watch, and we just started watching it. Got about three seasons into it, and I was in Ireland doing an indie film, and and then I got the call about it, and they want to talk to you about this King Viserys and are you a fan of Game of Thrones? And I'm like, well, that's weird. I'm watching it now and we're really getting into it. Um, So I I wasn't totally bullshitting the director when I said, I'm a fan and I've seen it. (laughs) But we did watch it all and I really, I loved it. I thought it was great. I thought some of it was some of the best television I'd ever seen. How is it being
0: part of such a huge franchise now, doing the circuit? Are you going to one day go to you know, like Comic-Con or whatever and
2: sit there and we did that in the summer. We went to Comic-Con yeah, and I found it a really strange experience because I was, you know, you're in a hall and there's a few thousand people there yeah, and you're on this panel and they took about 10 of us cast, but really the people in the audience didn't have a clue who anybody was except for Matt, you know, because he's obviously hugely popular through Doctor Who and the crown and things like that. So you're sitting there and you're talking about a show that nobody's seen. Nobody has a clue what you do in it. They don't know anything about it. So there was a lot of really odd, weird silences in between <laughs> questions. And I was starting to get more uncomfortable. And then by the end of it, I'm getting... And I had this condition early syndrome that's you know about light sensitivity and if I don't have my lenses on I start to get these ADHD symptoms and things I twitch and I can't look at people in the eye and all this stuff and I thought these things usually go quite quickly you know when you sit up there they they kind of speed along and before you know it it's done but this thing seemed to last for about three hours (laughs) and I was just sort of slowly dying but the fans have mostly been really really kind about it and I did want them to be happy with it. You know, I'm not one of these guys that, oh, fuck them, you know, who cares what they think, man. I'm like, no, no, I want to do a good job. I want them to think, wow, that's amazing. What a, what a great job. I wanted to honour the character and honour the world. And I didn't see anything wrong with that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look you look sort of relaxed. I looked at a few of the interviews you did around the show and you're appearing on American talk shows and things like that and, <laughs> and you look comfortable I mean do do you find those sorts of things okay or are they mortifying or
2: no that's the best acting I ever do that's my best acting Adam and and it's not sort of fakery but I did James Corden's chat show and of all the ones out there that was the probably the best one to do first because I met James a few times over the years yeah but All the while, I I just felt like I was having an out-of-body experience and I look very relaxed on them, but inside there's so much nervousness and inner turmoil going on. (laughs) The part of your brain's going, why why did I even say I, I would do this? What am I doing here? Why am I here? And you have to sort of say, you know why you're here. You're here to promote the show and you're also here for reasons of vanity. Let's not sort of lie about it. You're playing this character... And, you know, part of me wanted to go, I don't look like that. That's a performance. That's a transformation. And I want you to see what I actually look like.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've got both eyes. There isn't a hole in my cheek.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? And that's probably slightly vain in a way. I don't don't know. I, I, I guess it is. But I think I wanted people to know that's a performance. And I want you to know the difference. And I want you to know the, the work that I put into that.
0: Yeah. But you're not wrestling with all of that oddness to the extent that you're kind of consumed by self-loathing or self-doubt and feeling like you need to go back to your hotel room and hit the minibar hard, And or are you?
2: No, I don't do things like that. The only thing I'd hit the minibar for is, is Kit Kats and Snickers, really, you know. <laughs> no, it's not that, but I, I do... I'm very, I am very self-deprecating and I'm very... I am incredibly insecure about acting.
0: Mm -hmm. And where does that come from? Is that because you feel like you didn't learn the craft early on and you didn't have that training that some actors have?
2: Yeah, I think there's definitely an element of imposter syndrome in there. And I think, you know, without, you know, going too far... Go too far. Go ahead. Should we go too far? I just think that throughout my life, since I was a little kid, Adam, I've never had much of a sense of self-worth and and I, and i think i've always looked to the exterior world for approval in some way mm-hmm. i remember like being appraised for performing like even when i was a teenager i did a play at school i was it changed the school's view of me the the faculty the students everybody their opinion of me changed overnight just because i'd performed in a play and i thought god this is powerful But you can lose yourself to that a little bit because that's where you start to seek approval and there's no interior approval or confidence. You're just always sort of looking for that approval elsewhere. Mm -hmm. All my life, I was just looking for someone to say, you're a good boy. Because I was a kid, I come from a family, we had a reputation. My father had the reputation mainly. And as a little kid, I wasn't allowed to hang around with other kids. I had doors shut in my face and things like that. And I was judged by people just because of my father's reputation. And
0: his reputation was for being a sort of hard-drinking...
2: He was a hard-drinking brawler, you know. Mm. He was an Irish immigrant and, you know, he'd been in and out of prison for most of my early life and... And
0: for things like just getting in fights and stuff, was it?
2: For violence, yeah, Yeah. mainly. But, you know, once you get a reputation, that's it. And as 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 a result of that, us as kids suffered. And you know that was obviously very unfair so i think i just spent my life kind of saying but but i'm not like that when you've already been judged by teachers and things before you even got to their class i mean i was playing in the playground once and a teacher got hold of me and put me up against the wall and i was about nine years old and i was just playing with my friends in the playground and he went you're not going to give me any trouble next year are you and i went no i'm like i look at now what the fuck i want to knock him out you know But, like, what did I do to deserve that? I hadn't done anything. (laughs) What, what, were you cheeky or were you...? I I, I became cheeky. I became... I became ignorant, belligerent, because an incident happened with me at school where there was a girl in the school and she had a disfigurement. Uh And she was a lovely girl. She was very quiet and no-one ever hassled her. I remember in the schoolyard one day there was two kids and they were bullying her just calling her stuff and these were kids from my street so I went over and I went hey what are you doing? you know and I studied and I said leave her alone and did the right thing and they walked away and I said are you alright? you know and it's like yeah and I go and I sit in my next lesson and then ten minutes in there was a knock on the door and it was like you know Patrick Considine to see the headmaster so I went in And this girl's friend was stood there behind the headmaster's desk and a part of me glowed and I went, I know what this is about. This is the time that this guy is going to congratulate me for doing the right thing and sticking up for this girl's friend. But he didn't. He said to me, someone's been a bully, haven't they? And I went, yes, yes, they have, sir. Yes, yeah, someone's been picking on people less fortunate than them, and I went, "Yes, yes, they have, sir." Thinking, "Here it comes," and you stood up for them, didn't you? You know, and I'm, but it didn't. And he went, "That someone is you, isn't it?" And I went, "No, no, no, and no, it wasn't me." And I looked at this girl and I said, "No, no, I, I stood up for her, didn't I?" Bend over, and he and he punished me in front of this girl who stood there silently and said nothing while I got punished. And I think that was a massive point. And a young kid's life at that age, a part of me just went, this is what the world's like, isn't it? Oh, I get this fucking game now. And then a little thing changed in my little mind, and I went, fuck you, fuck all of you. And so I stopped reading, I stopped creative writing, I stopped singing, I'd sing out of tune on purpose and assembly at the top of my voice just to fuck everybody off. And I went, mean, if this is what it's like, then then I'm going to be the biggest pain in the fucking hole you've ever come across.
0: Did you ever say to the girl who accused you of being the bully, like, what's going on? Did you get the wrong end of the stick or are you lying
2: or what? No, I would never ever as a kid have followed that line of investigation. I wasn't that kind of kid. Uh-huh. I didn't have a reasonable semi-adult mind. I just became the victim in that moment. Okay and that's how I interpreted it, you know. So I think that long story just comes back to this idea of being misunderstood and the only way that I got any appraisal was through performance, the power of performance. But, of course, that brings with it massive criticism that i have just not emotionally equipped to deal with. I've ended friendships with people because they've gone out their way to email me bad reviews.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. That's what my mum used to do.
2: <laughs> and I'm like, what part of you thinks I need to see this? I'm not an idiot.
0: I think sometimes people don't realise that it's a bad review. They just go, oh, look, someone's writing about you. Well done. They're <laughs> like, have you yeah. read this? <laughs> They've mentioned your name in the paper. Yeah, they exactly. say I'm shit.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I guess that's the thing, isn't it? If part of the training perhaps you receive as an actor, if you do train, is to enable you to make that separation to not identify yourself entirely with the work that you do so that if you do receive criticism you're able just to say okay well that's a technical note and i'll either consider it or not but it's not a strike against you as a person
2: yeah and that's where i think i take it it's personal work and i think i invest too much of myself in it and I don't have that ability to just separate myself from it because I am the work Yeah, in many ways.
0: And so it's tempting as well to see some of the performances you give, particularly very intense characters and very intense moments, Dead Man's Shoes in particular, as a way of you... I mean, this is real Mickey Mouse psychology, and I apologise, <laughs> but tell me if there's any truth in this, that you are inhabiting a world of someone who has the kind of control and the power that maybe you felt you never had that you would have liked to have had you know that guy in dead man's shoes when he confronts gary Stretch's character yeah and he's pointing at the palm of his hand and saying you're there it's so thrilling to watch because it's what everyone wishes they could feel in the face of the unfairness and the injustice of so much of life you just wish you could respond that way and gary Stretch's character is saying you're not scared of me are you and your character's just saying nope and no and the the yearning that so many of us have to not feel that fear to not feel intimidated and to feel on top of a horrible situation in the face of people like that is incredibly cathartic
2: yeah, I think it is, Adam. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think that that idea of control is something that's that's really poignant. I, I find that sometimes you be, you've become a character and you don't want to go back to life in, in a strange way. Like I did a film called Journeyman where I played a brain-damaged boxer and I was being cared for all the time and looked after and nurtured and I'm going, oh, this is quite nice, actually. This isn't a, a bad state to be in. In real life, it would be a horrific state to be in. But as an actor, you kind of going, I kind of like this world that I've created. I don't have to deal with anything in this world. And like the bullies at the fence, I've been in altercations where I've walked away and you get down the road or you, you're a day later and you're going, I should have fucking said that. And it comes to you days later. Yeah. But you're right. He, he says that in the moment. And there is that idea of control. And it's all the things you wish you could say in those situations, but you but you can't. Yeah, Um, I think for me, for a long time, it was about escape. You know, escape from reality. Whether you're doing a play or you're doing a gig, part of you just for that little bit of time. And this isn't escaping your wife and your children and the things that you love. It's just escaping how fucking difficult the world can be and how hard life can be sometimes. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Presumably, interviewers have asked you before about... To what extent that pent-up anger that you portray very well in some characters and in some performances is connected with you. And we've sort of been talking about that a little bit. But does that question irritate you? Do you think it's ridiculous? I ask because, to put this in context, I was traumatized by an interview I did with Michael Shannon, the actor, and... In my mind, he specialised in being brilliant at these roles where he's playing a, a guy who's very repressed, very tightly wound, sitting on a lot of anger. And at some point, usually, especially in Boardwalk Empire, his character just sort of explodes in real ugly violence and cruelty. And I was doing this interview with Michael Shannon in the Apple Store, and I just wanted to ask, like, where do you go to 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 tap into that? And to what degree is that a facet of your own personality? Can't remember exactly the words I used, but he hated yeah. the question. He was just like, that's your question? He didn't get it at all. Why? I wonder why. I don't know, is the answer. But maybe he felt like, duh, it's acting. Obviously, I'm not like that. Yeah. But I just thought, okay, yeah, I get that it's acting. And I get that you're pretending. This is the weird thing about acting for me is that is that it's too easy to dance around it and say it's all just pretending. But the, the really good acting taps into something really real. That's why it's compelling to see yeah. someone on screen doing an amazing performance because you're thinking, yeah, that's exactly what that feeling is like. And I've felt that way or that rings totally true.
2: Yeah, I'm an imitator. I'm a great masker, you know, and... I've always been an imitator since I was a little kid. And I think I learned through my father how to imitate anger. And he was very volatile in a way. Now, don't get me wrong, we weren't dished out beatings every minute of every day. It wasn't like that. But he had no sort of um, limiter. So if I fell over and cut my knee, he'd become enraged by the fact that you'd hurt yourself because ultimately, he's probably feeling like, I, you know, my son's hurt himself and I'm upset, but I don't know how to articulate it. So he'd kind of leap out of the chair and become 10 foot tall and go, for fuck's sake, what were you doing on that fucking thing? You know, and off he'd go, bang. And he wasn't chastising you. He was upset because you were hurt. But that was his reaction to things. So in me, this skill I get as an actor of being able to just turn it like that comes from seeing somebody Who was able to do that in in their own life. You know, if a horse lost a race, you know, the fucking paper went flying, the pen went flying, you know, across the room and for a fucking the fucking television went over and all that. It's not a great environment in that respect. But I was able to sort of take that and use it. How
0: was your ma though with all of that?
2: I mean, you know, as they say in those days, Mum was Mum did her best. Mm. People like my mother found their sense of pride in how smart the kid looked. You know, the fact that there were three meals on the table every day. You know, it was a very working class environment. But I think also, you know, my mum suffered a lot with her nerves and her confidence. And my dad didn't help that Mm. at all. You know, but she was a very loving woman. She got very sick when I was sort of in my late teens, early 20s. That was a very, very slow decline. But it was just working class life. It was your life and you had to lump it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that, that really was it.
0: Did she get to see you doing well and succeeding as an actor?
2: No, she couldn't really see at that time. Mm. So she couldn't really see what I'd done.
0: What was wrong with her, if you don't mind me asking?
2: She had diabetes yeah. and, you know, in the end she was blind. She lost her legs and it was a tragic story it's like somebody that you kind of wanted to help but they didn't want your help yeah in a way and and i i think that that also went into this character i struggle with this thing about those things being crass but like using these people that you love as reference but i love them And they made such an impact on my life. The only way that I can honour them and my feelings about them and feeling like a sometimes a failure as a son, like I didn't do enough, I think the only way I can sort of uh, square it is to honour them somehow in a song or in a performance. I
0: don't think it's crass if it's well done, if there's a lot of heart in it. You can sort of sniff when people are just recycling experiences in a cheap way, I think. And if it's not done cheaply, then it's really valuable, I think, to see those portrayals because they make people feel less alone because so many of those things have happened in one form or another to people. And when they see it sincerely portrayed, it's comforting and interesting. I think a lot of people feel like a failure, either as a parent or a child or... People can relate to that big style.
2: I think so, Adam. And I agree with you about the the experience. I know a lot of what this is about is supposed to be entertaining, but I do think it's about sharing experiences. And I do think on some level it's about saying to people, you're not on your own, you know. And I think that's what storytelling means to me. Mm. And that's what acting means to me. It's pointless if it, if it didn't want to reach people with it. You want to just do it in your bedroom, to in front of the mirror, you know, perform Shakespeare on your own. You
0: also are in the enviable position of being musically talented, and so you're able to express yourself in that way as well. And your band Riding the Low are still together. That's really impressive. Like, is it, what part does that play in your life then? Is that still fun? Are you still able to do that on a kind of stop-start basis and the rest of the band are okay with it? How does it work?
2: Well, I'm doing it all the time. Never stop writing songs or working on it. Obviously, when I'm away working, there's other things to do. Like, you know, I had to sort out the album release this year, always organising shows. I come off Thrones and we did the festival run and did Glastonbury and a few other dates here and there. That's probably as well why I, I kinda of stopped writing films in a way. I just uh there's just something you can say in a song that's so immediate that if you try to put it into a film, just the toil of scripts and rewrites and going to people and trying to get finance and getting it off the ground and it's so tiring. And then after that's done you make a film. And no one wants it. No festivals want it. Nobody wants to see it, which happened with my last film. And I went, I don't know if I can be asked to go through that process when, you know, writing songs gives me so much, like, joy and fulfilment. I don't see the point in going through all that rigmarole. If it's creative satisfaction you want, well, I enjoy it. There's no expectation on it. It's just something that we all enjoy doing. And so there's no kind of anxiety or pressure around it but it's going really great
0: are you still a massive guided by voices head
2: oh mate i've got bob on my arm i've got a tattoo of bob on my arm like, i don't think there's a day goes by that i don't listen to guided by voices robert pollard literally changed my head profoundly and he's one of the greatest songwriters that ever lived and his body of work in the last five years, it's not just the, this idea that he has this massive output. Yeah, It's the fact that the albums themselves are, are fantastic and he's still a great, great songwriter.
0: How did you get into them? So you would have been getting into them post hot fuzz right because then in the early 2000s i think you sent me some cds of robert pollard stuff and gbv
2: i got into them before then because i think my daughter was born around 2005 and i was definitely into them around that time okay and it was a weird one with guided by voices because a a friend had put a few tracks on mixtapes over the years and you know I, i thought they were fine you know i wasn't jumping around about them and um Basically, I just kept playing it and something happened. I was just brushing my teeth and Not Behind the Fighter Jet came on and all of a sudden the lyrics just stood up and I just couldn't stop playing it and then that was it. I was a fanatic from that moment on.
0: What was that song?
2: Not Behind the Fighter Jet from Mag Earwig. Just the the words he was using, Militant Babies, came to me told me don't be afraid to try, phenomenal stunt kids in the street, popping out of a black ghost pie, the fearless ones cracked up, Jack and Jill are down there in the bunker still, you look like a sniper anyway. (laughs) I'm like, what the fuck did this guy, what? And that was it, I'm like, there's no rules anymore, there's no rules, It's, it's, it's an open field, man. (laughs)
0: he's great isn't he because it's not um, it doesn't feel forced those kind of weird lyrics like I love Beck right I think he's absolutely terrific I've always loved his stuff so much but every now and again especially in the early days some of his kind of crazy non sequitur cut up lyrics I just felt like mm, I don't know it sounds like he's trying a little bit too hard here you know what I mean
2: yeah yeah. But
0: you never get that with uh, Robert Pollard.
2: No, I think I get a sense from Bob that it's just a stream of consciousness, that it just flows from him.
0: Okay, here's an actual question I wrote down. <laughs> Have you ever compared notes about being a film actor in a group with other film actors in groups?
2: Never. Never. Never have, no, because I don't even like that association. It's so so odd that I go, no, 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 that's not what this is about. One of the unfortunate things that you have to fight is that, you know, people are a bit suspicious because, oh, an actor's got a band, and it was like, well, I was playing music. You know, since I was like 15 years old, it's not nothing new. But yeah, that judgment comes forward, and I don't know why. I'm I'm just very much like if it's good, it's good. Maybe there's been lots of bad examples of actors who've uh, fancied themselves as rock stars. But if anyone's got any doubts, come to a show.
0: Yeah, good idea.
2: But- we'll soon put your fucking right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you've never you've never blown up in an interview Billy Bob Thornton style. Did you ever see that? Interview he did on yeah RQ.
2: yeah I love Billy Bob I I don't know what that's about my my thing with that is like well, what do you expect I mean I know, I know you've made a country album and probably poured his heart and soul into it but you can't go out there expecting people to take you seriously you can't expect anything from anybody mm-hmm. I do interviews now I do stuff for Six Music and Riding the Low I've got a new single and it's like so Dead Man's Shoes and you go. I'm just going to have to roll with it because that's far greater than uh, out there in the consciousness than riding the low is. And I don't expect people to not bring it up. So, uh, yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't. Okay. If we're six albums down the line and selling out Wembley Stadium, then i will probably go, come on, mate, change the fucking record. But yeah, nah, I,
0: no. for people who don't know what I'm talking about, there was an interview that Billy Bob Thornton did on a channel called Q and uh, he was being interviewed by a Canadian journalist and he was there with his band, The Box Cutters. And I think before the interview, he'd seen on the computer that they were going to introduce him as Oscar-winning actor Billy Bob Thornton with his bandmates from The Box Cutters. And he said, actually, can you not put that? Can you just kind of give us equal billing going into the interview? Right.
2: Oh, okay. That makes sense. And
0: they, and they didn't. They just sort of stuck to positioning him as... Billy Bob Thornton Oscar winning actor so then he just got all bent out of shape and started refusing to answer questions and giving him the silent treatment the interviewer and it got really awkward
2: (laughs) yeah I can understand him in a way I can I understand that but like you know we've had situations where we're doing a gig and it's got on the poster Paddy Considine from Dead Man Shoes and his band and we have made a call and gone can you change that yeah and just just put right in the low. But you, you've got to understand from their point of view as well, they're probably some pub in Derby and they're going, well, if we put your name on it, we might get five more people and sell 10 more pints. That's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it
0: reminds you of your place in the universe. I went out to New York. This must have been about 10 years ago now or something. And I had it in my head that I was just going to do a few stand-up shows And it would be great and, yeah, probably be quite a bit of a buzz after I did that. And, of course, you're hit with the reality of no one knows who you are. And they're absolutely tiny venues with tiny audiences. One of the venues I did had one person there, and he was from Manchester. (laughs) (laughs) And, And outside this pub in the village, I did a show one night, and it was a really nice little venue. But out on the chalkboard outside, it just said uh, Adam Buxton from Hot Fuzz. And I thought, wow, I'm really not a big part of Hot Fuzz. But OK, I get it. That's that's the only way they can kind of connect me to the wider world. Yeah. Otherwise, what the fuck are they going to say? You know, Adam Buxton from the Adam and Joe show brackets. The Adam and Joe show was a homemade program
2: in the. <laughs> Put your Wikipedia yeah, page exactly. on there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah I try not to get too uptight about it, you know, I just get on with it and But the nice thing is that people do have come along to see the band because I'm in it, and then those people have become fans of the band and follow the band and follow the other members and you know and and they get it, and they've got over that idea that the fact that I'm stood there on the stage in front of them, and they come to watch us as a band, and that's really great, mm. so and they get it, they understand.
0: As a music fan, was it fun doing 24-hour party people and um, working in that atmosphere? You played Rob Gretton in that film. Yeah. Who was, uh, he was the manager of Joy Division, is that right? Or was he yeah, a label boss?
2: Yeah, he was, boss? yeah. He had a label um, and he was part of Factory. Right. And he was the manager of Joy Division and then New Order. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved working on that. It was amazing. I met, I met Simon on that. I met Peg on that. Oh, yeah. And I enjoyed doing it. And it was one of those special projects where, you know, people just emerged from the scene in Manchester and started hanging around and giving us research materials. And you were sitting; I was sitting with members of a certain ratio, and, you know, talking to them about Rob, dressed as my version of Rob and freaking them out. And it was a great experience. i so was working with a lot of people I really admired on it. Steve Coogan, obviously it was Tony and John, Tim. There's so many... Uh, Andy Serkis, Sean Harris. I mean, God, it was a massive cast of uh, of people. But I, I really enjoyed making it. And it was one of those where strange things were happening. They recreated the Hacienda. And um, us as characters gravitated towards the actual spots where the real people would hang out just by accident, uh-huh. which I thought was really odd. And I remember like seeing Rob's wife, Leslie Gretton, stood in this Hacienda set and I was stood and I looked over at her and I would never sort of look at her with Rob's glasses on because that was a big thing about Rob was his big glasses and, I'd, and I took them off the minute I saw her.
0: Because you thought it would be weird to be pretending th- to be her...
2: I, I thought it'd be weird to be pretending to be her late husband right? Okay. in this environment and, and I said, oh, I'll take my glasses off. And she said, I'm glad you, I'm glad you did that. And we stood talking and she goes, Do you know, this is the spot where me and Rob used to stand. Hmm. And I went, oh, God. And it was like, oh, and that's where the, you know, Happy Mondays used to hang out. And that and everybody was in their places. It was really sort of surreal and, and supernatural. Yeah. And Tony Wilson didn't come anywhere near me on that set. And to the point where I'm thinking, what have I fucking done to him? You know, like, he's talking to everyone else. He wouldn't come near me. And I think it, it was his son who, who sort of said to me, well, you know why, don't you? Because you looked like Rob Gretton, and he couldn't be that near to me or around me because I looked so much—you know, my interpretation—I would yeah. say of, of Rob—and it was too, probably a bit too much for him at the time. So, uh, yeah, but it was—it was a very, very interesting shoot that one.
0: I really like that film. <laughs> you weren't around on the days that people like Marky e. Smith or Howard Devoto did scenes, were you?
2: gutted absolutely gutted that i never got to meet either of them yeah you know i got to meet new order and i've met you know Stephen and Gillian a few times now and i met barney once twice peter was really really nice you know he was a really nice guy he was only brief but i like meeting hooky but no I missed um, I missed Mark I'd have loved to have met him yeah and, he, and in his um, autobiography he, he spoke about Dead Man's Shoes in it as well did he what did he say well I can't remember the exact thing but he was just talking about what what a good interpretation it was of kind of you know northern life and those kind of low life kind of characters and and that was a great compliment going wow you know the fact that he'd even seen it and, yeah you know maybe I could approach him in the pub and say hello Mark <laughs> But maybe not. I don't know. I think he was probably a bit of a pussycat underneath it all. But.
0: Yeah, I think so too. But um, there was a lot of stuff you had to get through to find that pussycat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is an advert
1: for Squarespace.
0: Welcome back, podcats. I was talking to Paddy Considine there and I'm very grateful to Paddy for giving up his time to waffle with me. In the podcast notes today, you will find a link to a Spotify playlist that Paddy put together of some of his favourite tracks from recent Guided by Voices albums. So this is a legendary American indie band who were together in the 90s and early 2000s, but then broke up for quite a few years, like over a decade. Robert Pollard was doing his own stuff. But then he got the band back together. And I think that was in the early 2010s, perhaps. I'm not an expert. Apologies if I'm getting this wrong. But this whole second phase of their career has been, as far as the fans are concerned just as amazing as the first part, like they are just firing on all cylinders still and cranking out albums at an incredible rate. So yeah, Paddy's Spotify playlist is Guided by Voices Mark II. Just a few tracks from some of their recent records. But I listened to that the other night with a glass of jazzy wine when everyone had gone to bed and I had a pretty wonderful time. What else have we got in the links? Oh yeah, there's this short film that Chris Morris made starring Paddy Considine back in 2002, which is called My Wrongs 8245 to 8249 and 117, about a bloke who can suddenly hear his dog talking to him. That's just on YouTube I found that. had not seen that for a while. There's a link to Billy Bob Thornton on QTV getting upset. I think I've probably linked to that clip, well, at least once before. And then there's a link to Billy Bob Thornton explaining why he got upset. There is also a link to the World of Wonder website, World of Wonder being the production company that produced the Adam and Joe show back in the day, run by... Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato. Fenton was a guest on this podcast. And you can hear me and Fenton chatting about the old days of the Adam and Joe show on that, as well as some of the other amazing shows that World of Wonder have been responsible for over the years, including RuPaul's Drag Race. Fenton has now written a book called Screen Age, How TV Shaped Our Reality, from Tammy Faye who World of Wonder made a show about, to RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, I'm quoting now from the blurb on the World of Wonder website. This riotous tale of pop culture charts the story of how World of Wonder pioneered the revolutionary genre of reality TV whilst supporting and ushering queer voices into the mainstream. Fenton Bailey says, Screen Age is my love letter to television. It's a personal odyssey and a cultural journey. RuPaul has said... Everything I learned, I learned through television. And thanks to television, I saw who I was and found my tribe. Screen age is also about the big impact of the small screen on all our lives. It has made the invisible visible, especially outsiders and those on the margins. Me and Joe get a couple of mentions in there. He talks about the early days of the Adam and Joe show and some of the other programs that inspired it. It's a must for pop culture vultures who also like to pick at the bones of social criticism. No, that's no good. This is why I don't do book jacket quotes. Anyway, Screen Age by Fenton Bailey. Check it out. Link in the description. That's it for today. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy-Mitchell for his invaluable production support. Thanks to Becca Bryars for her conversation editing on this episode. Thanks, Becca. Thanks to Helen Green. She does the beautiful artwork for this podcast. Thanks to Acast and all who work there for helping keep the show on the road. But thanks most especially to you. You downloaded this. You listened right to the end. All the stuff that I just waffled about. Guided by Voices, Fenton Bailey, all this esoterica, you are just munching on it. And you're saying, thanks, Buckles. I loved it. Can I have some more? And I appreciate that. Not all of you are saying that. Uh, I've got a couple of messages from you in the week, along with the um, other Christmassy messages that you have been sending in. But thanks very much to everyone who's sent in stuff for the Christmas special with Joe which I will be recording in a couple of days as I speak. Got some good egg corns and made-up jokes, and there's still time to contribute a few more bits and pieces. Okay, till the next time we're together, go carefully out there. And if it makes a difference, I love you. Rosie's looking at me and her ears are going up. I love you too, dog. Quick hug? Come on. Good to see you. Bye!